I do pray, as Cassidy prayed, that this is life-changing for you. I pray we don't just simply come to church, but, but we decide to pick up our cross and follow. Perhaps you've dropped your cross. I uh, pray you pick it back up and let's follow. So I have a trivia question for you guys. How many times do you have to be saved in order to get to heaven? Once. One time. Another trivia question. How many times do we have to pick up our cross in order to follow Jesus Christ? Every day. Good job, guys. So when I was in high school, I played football, and I can remember football games where it was raining, and so the field was muddy, and we played our hearts out, and I always liked it. I always liked like my, my uniform being covered in mud and in blood, and for my helmet to have uh, scrapes all over it and little chunks gouged out of it, and I remember loading up on the van after a game like this, loading up on the bus, looking like that, inevitably there was always that one player whose uniform looked spotless white. <laughs> and they would be like tippy-toeing back to, the, back to the bus so as not to get mud on their cleats and mud on their pants and mud on their jerseys. And I say all that to say this, we're in a fight, we're in a spiritual battle, uh, we're in a race. Uh, the, the, the Bible tells us to run the race that was marked out for us. We are to, to store up for ourselves treasures in heavens. We are in a battle for souls and um, eternal life. What does your uniform look like? What does your uniform look like? Have you left it all on the field? When you get to heaven one day, we're saved once, but when you get to heaven one day, are you going to sort of tippy-toe into heaven with a perfectly clean uniform? Or are you a follower of Jesus Christ who's left it all on the field? Are you? I love weeks like this. I love weeks like camp. I mean, up early to bed late, nonstop, all day long, teaching, pouring into kids, hiking, on your toes leadership-wise, um, VBS, and I love mission trips up before dawn and, you know, bed late at night, no sleep. I, I love days where you get at home at night and you lay down and you're exhausted and you say, Lord, I left it all on the field today. Is that the way you're living? I think that sometimes we um, have allowed so many days to uh, transpire without carrying our cross that we think, well, in terms of following Jesus Christ, Jesus is so far ahead of me, what's the use? I mean, I can never catch up. I can never follow closely again. But this is the beauty of we as saints being washed in the blood of Christ, and we are the righteousness of God, and this is the beauty of repentance. If you repent with all your heart and commit to following your Christ, following your rabbi today, then in an instant you are on the heels of Jesus Christ following Christ. In an instant. This is the beauty of repentance. So, how close are you to Christ? Are you following Christ? There's a phrase from the first century called... Uh, covered in the dust of your rabbi. Now, let me put this a bit in context. 
For example, uh, young Hebrew boys in first century um, Judea would begin going to school at a young age. They'd begin reading and writing. They would immediately learn how sweet the Bible is. One of their first lessons in school, which was in essence rabbinical uh, training for rabbinical school, was that honey would be put on a piece of paper and they would taste that honey and they would learn that the word of God is sweet and sweet to my soul. And by the age of 13, they would have the entire book of Moses memorized, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Can you imagine memorizing Leviticus? They memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they memorized it so thoroughly that these 13-year-old boys, the the rabbi would ask them, uh, they, they would say a certain verse, and they don't have it broken down into chapters and verses like we do today. That's for our convenience. So they would say a verse somewhere in the book of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five of the Old Testament, and then these kids could say that verse, and they could quote the verse in front of it and the verse behind it. They had the Torah memorized by the age of 13. Now, after the the age of 13, they are ready to apply basically for rabbinical school. Um, And it was the dream. That was the dream. Like the dream around here might be a full ride to a baseball scholarship at TCU. The dream there in Jesus' day in Judea in the first century, the dream was to get into rabbi school. And they, like, like we have, you know, various uh, degrees of prestige in, st- in, terms of, in terms of education, you know, with Harvard and Yale being at the top. So they had various degrees of prestige in terms of following a rabbi. But you had to, you, you had to apply for his rabbi school, and each rabbi had his own exam that he would give to his potential student. And then uh, these rabbis um, prided themselves on the difficulty of their exams in order to get into their school. And And so you would apply for their exams, and if you didn't make it, well, guess what? Well, it's back to the family business, and which is why Jesus found Peter, James, and John not in rabbi school because they didn't make the cut. He found them uh, going about their father's business, fishing for fish, which is why he saw them on the beach and said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. There was a young Hebrew male, though, in Jesus' day that did make the cut. Not only did he make the cut, he made the cut of cuts. It would be the equivalent of he had access into Harvard or Yale, and it was a full ride at that. There was a young man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, and he was so bright and he was so sharp that when he finished training and he was 13 years of age, he began applying for rabbi school, and he made the cut for a rabbi named Gamaliel. And this was incredibly prestigious, Gamaliel. And so Saul of Tarsus began following Gamaliel. And so when Saul said, hey, my rabbi is Gamaliel, people were like, oh my gosh, you are the sharpest, you are the brightest, you are the best, you have the greatest leadership giftings, you have the greatest leadership skills. And Saul of Tarsus grew grew into a young man and a young Pharisee. Now, a quick and aside to help you read your Bible better. During Jesus' day, there were various political parties. There were the Pharisees. We know about them. They tried to bring about change uh, through theological purity. And then there were the Sadducees. They were a little more brutal, but this particular political slash religious party tried to bring about change through political um, manipulation and maneuvering. And then there were the Zealots. And the zealots were basically terrorists. They tried to bring about change through military force. 
Now, the, the tool of the Pharisees was Scripture. The tool of the Sadducees was political position and clout and influence. And the tool of the zealot was called a sakar or a sakar knife. Now, this sakar knife, it was a knife that had a shape like this. It was short. It had a shape like this. Basically, it would be the modern-day equivalent of a switchblade. They could hide it. They could conceal it. And during festivals when Jerusalem was packed shoulder to shoulder with people and it was packed with Roman soldiers trying to keep peace, they would walk behind these soldiers and they would pull out their sakar and because it had a curve, they would come in behind them like right, right around this area and they would puncture their heart and they would pull the sakar out. They would immediately kill these people and then with this arm, just fling them around like this and throw them into an alley and they would keep walking and nobody even knew that they killed somebody and they literally killed tens of tens of thousands of Romans and not only that they killed thousands upon thousands of Jews who they didn't consider were pure and holy enough what the Pharisees the Sadducees the Zealots in Jesus' day well and then you have um, the Essenes and you don't hear much about the Essenes because nobody saw much of the Essenes because their philosophy was let's just maintain purity and so they isolated themselves up in the mountains uh, repenting daily. They informed new and beautiful ways to repent and they devoted themselves to copy and scripture to preserve it for the next generation. So with that, let's zero in on this political slash religious party called the Pharisees. And amongst the Pharisees, there was a young man named Saul of Tarsus who sat at the feet of Gamaliel who arose amongst the ranks. And he was the best of the best. He exceeded all of his contemporaries by far in terms of zeal, in terms of passion, in terms of knowledge, in terms of leadership skills, in terms of capability. Now he's about 30 years old. He's the best of the best. The best of the best. Now, there's this young rabbi who uh, didn't get his credentials from a, a Gamaliel or a Socrates type person. He got his credentials from this wild prophet in the wilderness named John the Baptist. And he got his credentials from God the Father. And when Jesus was baptized, God said, listen to him. And his name was Jesus, and he was from Nazareth. And as Jesus went about uh, from town to town around the Sea of Galilee, teaching and preaching and healing, the crowds swarmed. And the Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots absolutely hated him. And a huge crowd of people would swarm around Jesus, and they would be following Jesus, and he'd be teaching, and he would be healing, and it was all too common for Jesus to be walking with a huge crowd around him, and then to be met with the crowd in front of him. I mean, it was like two gangs standing toe-to-toe. It would be the the Pharisees, it would be the Sadducees, they all wanted him dead. And so, somebody from the Pharisees would stand... uh, at the front of the pack. And they would pick a fight with Jesus, uh, trying to corner him with his words, trying to bring about some theological fallacy, trying to uh, display some ignorance to God's word, trying to uh, surface some fault in his character. And every single time they left with a bloody nose, to the ex- metaphorically speaking, to the extent that scripture said that finally they dared not even ask Jesus any more questions. Now, if they're going to try to put a, a, a dampener on this movement of Jesus, who do you think the Pharisees are going to put forward? Somebody Jesus' age. Somebody um, that is exceeding in zeal, exceeding in knowledge, exceeding in passion. 
who would that have been? Saul of Tarsus. And every time Saul and this pack of Pharisees confronted Jesus, they got put in their place and they walked away ashamed. Would that put a little context in the book of Acts when we read about Saul of Tarsus, that he got papers to be able to persecute the church, and the scriptures say he was breathing out violence against the church, dragging them away to be persecuted? He hated Jesus, he hated the name of Jesus, and there was a reason for it. He tried to stand toe-to-toe against Jesus time and time again, and time and time he got put in his place so that even Saul of Tarsus did not dare bring an accusation or a charge or a question against Jesus. Now, fast forward time. There's the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, arrival of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the creation of the church. Saul of Tarsus is now breathing out violence, persecuting the church. He's on the road to Damascus to persecute the church. And there, who does he meet? The resurrected Jesus Christ, like a blinding light. He falls off his high horse, literally and metaphorically. His pride is cut down. He's humbled. And right then and there, he commits his life to following a new rabbi, not Gamaliel, but Jesus Christ. And then... The Apostle Paul, he changed his name from Saul to Paul, and then the Apostle Paul, in his letters, said, Before Christ, all of the knowledge, all of the credentials, all of the accolades, all of the pats on the back, all all of the glory, all of the credibility, everything that I accumulated before Christ, I consider dung. I consider trash, I consider worthless, I consider dung compared to the privilege and the honor of knowing and following Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the rabbi of rabbis, and it is the greatest honor in the world to be able to follow in the footsteps of the greatest of all rabbis, the creator of the universe, our Lord, our Messiah, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And the thing about it is, Gamaliel's rabbinical school was dung, Paul said, compared to following Jesus Christ. And Jesus, he says, my burden, my yoke. These other rabbis put a big yoke on you, a big burden, and they do that for their own pride. My burden, my yoke, it's not like that. My burden, my yoke is easy. If you're weary and heavy burden, you're allowed, come and follow me. And I think it's so awesome that Jesus went to the shores of Galilee and found some guys who didn't make any rabbinical school. And he said, Peter, James, John, drop your net and follow me. And they realized the dream's not dead, the dream's of life. I can follow this rabbi. And they did, and they changed the world. And today, Jesus is inviting every single one of us to follow him. And to follow so closely that we are covered in the dust of our rabbi. That's an awesome phrase. In Jesus' day, that meant that you were following your rabbi so closely that you were so close to his heels that his heels are kicking up dust and dust is caked on you because you're following so close to the dust of your rabbi. Now that doesn't mean that you understand his teachings. It means you understand his mannerisms. You don't just... You don't just go and, and, and sit a couple of hours with them a week in a class. No, no. 
You followed him. You got right on his heels. You went everywhere he went. You lived with him. You followed him. You watched him eat. You watched him relate to people. You watched him respond to people. You watched him initiate conversations. You watched his humor. You watched his expressions. You watched his hand gestures. You watched how he walked. And you emulated everything about your rabbi. And when somebody looked at a rabbi's apprentice and they looked so much like their rabbi, they would say, ah, you're Gamaliel's rabbi because you look just like him. And you were covered in the dust of your rabbi. And after the church was born and Jesus is in heaven, Jesus had some disciples and they were preaching and teaching and rebuking and correcting and responding to criticism and they were ministering and they were healing and some people looked at them and they marveled because they did not have the leadership. Of, I mean, they, they, they just saw, they, they didn't, in, in their own abilities, they didn't have this kind of leadership to be able to do what they do. In their own abilities, they didn't have this kind of knowledge. They, they, they didn't have this kind of oratory capacity to do what they were doing and yet they were doing it. And then they remembered these guys had been with Jesus because they looked just like Jesus. And this morning's sermon is being zealous to follow Jesus, being zealous to follow so closely that you are covered in the dust of our rabbi. And incidentally, that's the only way that we're going to get to heaven one day with a uniform that is muddy and bloodied and sweaty, and dirty, and gouged, and scratched, rather than tippy-toeing into heaven. We got there, but our uniform is spotless, because we didn't leave it all on the field. Now let me ask you this, in terms of following Jesus Christ, and I don't mean this to make you feel guilty or anything of this nature. I mean this literally just, just as something um, introspectively, something uh, thought-provoking, something for you to evaluate your life and examine your doctrine and your life and to make sure that they line up. If everybody in the church followed Jesus as closely as you follow Jesus, would the church have momentum? If everybody in the church followed Jesus as closely as you follow Jesus, would heaven be resounding with prayers for power? If everybody in the church followed Jesus as closely as you follow Jesus, would the lost be coming to Christ? If everybody in the church followed Jesus as closely as you follow Jesus, would the church be encouraged and edified and loved on? If everybody in the church followed Jesus as closely as you follow Jesus, would this be an energetic, warm, hospitable fellowship? So, you have your outlines, pick it out, or take it out, and um, I want to ask you some, some questions. I actually draw out a couple of principles to help you follow as closely as you can follow. This is what it looks like. Follow closely. Follow closely, and we've talked about this a little bit, but in order to, to, to follow your rabbi, you've got to follow closely, and to follow closely, you must be covered in the dust of your rabbi. You know, back to that football analogy, if, if you try to play a game without getting your uniform dirty, guess what happens? The other guys will come, 
boom, and you will get smashed. You will get leveled, which means we cannot pray timidly. We cannot love reservedly. There is only one way to follow Christ, and that is passionately. We're saved once, but we have to pick up our cross and follow daily. And this distinguishes followers of Jesus Christ. Let me back up. This distinguishes saints who will either tiptoe into heaven with a clean uniform or walk in bloodied and bruised and scarred and hear their Savior say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So where is your passion to follow on a scale from one to ten? Is it a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten? Circle it. You have an outline in front of you? Circle it. Where is your passion to follow? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all. Circle that word all. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. In other words, there's only one way to love Jesus, and that is with all your heart. And by the way, we can't love Jesus and ignore people who need Jesus. We love Jesus by loving people who need Jesus. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you have done it unto me. We have to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. In order to follow Christ, it's going to require sacrifice. There is something in your life that you have to deny in order to follow Jesus. I don't know what that is for you, but you have to deny yourself and follow Jesus. And you have to pick up your cross daily. Again, we're saved once, but we have to pick up our cross daily. Which is why Paul said in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In order to deny yourself, that's an opportunity to worship Jesus, and you are a living and breathing sacrifice, and this is how we worship God. When we sing about God and our spirit surges, the way that we take this singing into the world and into our lives is to deny ourselves through some sacrifice throughout the day, and we worship Jesus. That is our spiritual worship. The option to that, Jesus, the scriptures say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing of your faith you may discern what is the will of God, what is his good, acceptable, and perfect will. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. So that goes back to that aspect of following Christ means denying yourself. Following Christ means living and breathing sacrifices throughout each day. Following Christ means throwing aside that sin which so easily entangles us, and that enables us to run with endurance and passion the race that was set before us. We're starting a series next week. I'm excited about this series. It's called Wisdom. Wisdom. Um, and this is how we make life work. I really, I really don't like it when I see non-Christians with more momentum than Christians simply because they make wiser decisions than Christians. Now, I, I, I am a fan of trials and tribulations. We talk about trials and tribulations often around here. 
God allows trials and tribulations to build our faith, to build our character. I'm a fan of trials and tribulations that have been brought on by satanic attack because he hates us, because we're proclaiming the name of Jesus. I am a fan of trials and tribulations that are brought on because we are picking up our cross and following Christ, and it is counterintuitive to this world. But I am not a fan of self-inflicted trials and tribulations because of foolishness. And the essence of wisdom is to have a heart to follow Christ. It's kind of like, you know, if you're building something, is it hard work? Yeah. But if you take a hammer and smash your thumb, is that going to hurt? Yes. And you can actually learn how to hammer in a way that you don't smash your thumb. And I'm not a fan of seeing followers of Jesus Christ live in a manner where they smash their thumb. I see them enter into tribulations. I'm like, ouch, that hurts. And that was so self-inflicted. They just smashed their own thumb with a hammer. And reality is, wisdom isn't about knowledge, about what you know. Wisdom really has to do with the heart. And it's a heart to want to follow Christ. Did you know that's wisdom? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Not like fearing the Lord like you would fear a terrorist. No, the Bible defines what the fear of the Lord is. The beginning of the wisdom of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord is to hate evil and sin. We don't hate sinners, we hate sin because it's so destructive. So wisdom is having a heart to follow Christ so closely because we know that is the path that is blessed. Wisdom is having a heart to follow Christ so closely because we know if we step off of that path, God still loves us, but that path is not blessed and we are vulnerable and that path is not protected. Wisdom is having a heart to follow so closely to Christ that we develop a greater desire for righteousness than this world. So next week we're starting this series called Wisdom. And it's not about simply knowledge. It includes knowledge, and it includes a thirst for knowledge and a thirst for wisdom. But at the heart of wisdom is a desire to follow Christ. And by the way, next week I have a friend coming. He's the, uh, he's the Marine I told you about who served a couple of tours in Iraq, who was, um, man, just a picture of Christ to me in the wilderness. And uh, when he was in Iraq, he was lost, as you could imagine, a heart as far from God that there's ever been and he lost some men and that were under his watch and he came back and his heart was so far from God a lot of combat vets come back and they have a lot of very real struggles and his struggle was alcohol because that's how he was escaping the pain that's how he was dealing with things that's how he forgot about things that's how he didn't feel anything and he would even he would sleep around he had a wife who was so faithful who would visit him in jail bail him out of jail catch him in bed with another woman and she would just pray God even if Joey never loves me let him love you and eventually Joey came to Christ he Christ transformed his heart and we're just going to hear his before and after story and how he met Christ and I'm going to preach and I'm just challenging you to invite all of your friends that you can who needs Christ. Invite all the lost causes that you can and let's just see Jesus do a great work in their life. Um, That evening, by the way, is going to be a huge celebration and it's going to be at night at six, not here, but at CERA 
the sand volleyball courts on Bryant Irvin Road. We'll have a bounce house for the kids. We'll be having baptisms. Uh, many people will be following Jesus in baptism. I'll be casting some vision. It'll be a great fellowship, a great cookout. And I know that some of you think, think oh, okay, well, it's not preaching. It's light stuff. It's just fellowships. I'm going to stay at home. Did you know that fellowship is as weighty as preaching? Did you know that? Because without love, without unity, all the preaching in the world is worthless. Really, we might as well stay home and watch Christian TV. Seriously. Fellowship and unity in the church family is as weighty, and being involved in each other's lives is as weighty as preaching. I'm not saying preaching and doctrine is not important. It's critically important. But I'm just saying fellowship and unity and getting in each other's lives is just as weighty. Otherwise, let's just stay at home and watch Christian TV. And so when we're fellowshipping at 6 p.m. on Sunday, it's not like, oh, well, I'm just going to stay and watch TV because that's not weighty. It's extraordinarily weighty. And so um, just as uh, the Old Testament Scripture issued the... God issued the Feast of Tabernacles and commanded everybody to show up and to be joyful. So it is with our fellowship on Sunday night. Please come out and be joyful. And we're expecting many, many people to come to Christ. And here's the thing about following closely. Here's the thing about following closely in terms of righteousness, in terms of obedience, in terms of picking up your cross and following Christ. The crud from this world doesn't make your heart so callous to the Holy Spirit, that you can't hear Him whisper, I love you, I have promises for you, I have plans for you. Your heart is so desensitized that you don't have joy. Your heart's so desensitized that, that, that you don't have compassion. The Holy Spirit may say, do this or do that, but you don't have the capacity to do it. You don't have patience. You don't have love overflowing in your heart. Uh, does Jesus love you? Yes. Are you saved? Yeah, but you're tippy-toeing into heaven with a very clean uniform. And so we have to follow closely, otherwise our spirit will be so desensitized, we can never sense a leading or be filled with the Holy Spirit to engage into passionate ministry. Here's the thing. I mentioned about 20 kids came forward at the last night of camp. Why does it usually work like that? Why isn't the first night of camp? This is why. It's because them, like us are so addicted to our cell phones and social media and all of these things and, and the music that we listen to and coarse jokes or whatever it might be or work or burdens or pressures that, that, that we can't hear from God. Our heart's so hard, the Holy Spirit is whispering, I love you, come to me, let me change your life, let me change the world through you. But because we're not following, we, we, we can't sense it. And so we can remain completely unimpacted but after an entire week of detoxing from TV, detoxing from pet sins, detoxing from social media, detoxing from music, detoxing from music with lyrics that, that scream against following Christ, after a whole week of detoxing from that and being immersed in Scripture and being immersed in worship and being immersed in the presence of Christ and being immersed in creation then you can stand before a group of kids and say, who wants to start following Christ now? I mean, accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, not reject it, but accept it through the blood of Christ, be born again and start following with all your heart. Nothing flashy. And 20 hands immediately go up. And I think maybe they mis mis misunderstood me. So I said, put your, put your hands down. I mean, today, for the first time, you want to follow Christ Get out of your seats and come stand right in front of me. And 20 kids come stand right in front of you. When, when we follow Christ, 
we have a heart that's responsive and we have a heart that's, that's obedient. Here's the thing about being covered in the dust of our rabbi. Yes, it involves denying sin. Yes, it involves a life of righteousness. Yes, it involves just holiness and purity. But it also involves a whole lot of shade. A whole lot of shade. Jesus said, come with me by yourselves to get some quiet rest. This is after he sent his disciples out for some mission, some ministry. They came back, they worked, the demons submitted to the name of Christ under the authority flowing through them. They were pumped up and he said, okay, it's awesome, it's awesome, but come away, come with me to a quiet place and get some rest. I had the kids, this is the craziest lesson I've ever given, but it was hot, hot summer day and um, I was like, it was in the middle of the day and the sand volleyball court was so hot it felt like the pavement of a, on the street it was that hot I mean you, you couldn't stand on it without shoes or socks you just couldn't one kid tried and he looked like a potato hopping off and, but I had them standing under there and I was just grateful kids didn't fall out with heat stroke or anything like that and it was getting miserable and they were watching me turn red right before their eyes. And we were standing there under the heat. And we read Psalm 46. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, our soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We talked about that as our bodies thirst and as our bodies need shade, as our bodies need a cool breeze, so our souls thirst, our souls need shade, our souls need a cool breeze. And our souls think that what is going to quench and what is going to provide cover and what is going to provide shade is a whole lot of money. Or our souls think it's going to be a whole lot of worldly security. Our souls think a whole lot of sexual immorality or a whole lot of addiction or a whole lot of alcohol or a whole lot of drugs or a whole lot of popularity or a whole lot of success in this world or a relationship or whatever it is. But all of that is a dry and weary land and we will be toast. We will be toast. Our spirits will be toast if we don't find real shade. Which is why to follow Christ, we have to find real shade every day. And Jesus modeled real shade. Early in the morning when it was still dark, Jesus got up and went to a solitary place where he prayed. He did that because he was wiped out from ministry. Casting out demons and healing people, that's physically exhausting ministry. He's wiped out from intense ministry the entire night before. And... The whole next day, uh, as soon as everybody else wakes up, they're all looking for him. And so Jesus had to wake up early in the morning when it was still dark, and he went to a solitary place where he prayed. Why? Because his soul needed shade. His soul needed water. His soul needed a cool breeze. And so does ours. And to follow Jesus, we have to follow Jesus into the shelter, the secret place of the Most High, that daily devotional, that quiet time with prayer, with our Bible, with a listening ear every single day. And listen to this. Listen, 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 listen. It's critical that we minister with passion, right? Because, again, what if everyone in the church was as passionate as you? I'm not saying this in a condemning way. I'm just saying this in an introspective, self-provoking way, self-evaluating way. What if everybody in the church was as devoted, was as passionate as you? What kind of church would this be?
So ministry is critical. Passionate ministry is critical. But if we don't link passionate ministry with finding shade at a consistent time, at a consistent place, every single day of our lives, and then throughout the day, finding shades where we go away with Jesus and get some rest for our souls, then we are so susceptible, we are so vulnerable. And when I see somebody that's not linking every one of their daily times together, every one of their days together with time with Jesus, I'm thinking, man, it's just a matter of time before the flesh is going to take over them and they're going to fall right back into alcohol. They're going to fall right back into drugs. They're going to fall right back into pornography. They're going to fall right back into promiscuity. They're going to fall right back into the deceitfulness of riches and security. Safety? I have a friend who had a battle with alcohol. He was a good friend. He was one of my greatest encouragers I've ever had in my life. And uh, I've shared about him from time to time. He had a heart to give. And he did well in the oil and gas industry. He'd close a big deal and be so excited to tide the Hope Works. Uh, he, he just had this gift of giving. He would fill the back of his truck up with canned food and say, meet me somewhere. And then we would go to the poorest neighborhoods of Fort Worth and just give the food away. He had a beautiful wife, two beautiful kids. His kids adored their daddy. His wife adored her husband. He loved his family. He had so much joy. He loved Jesus. But he had a battle with alcohol. And one night, alcohol got the best of him. And under the influence, he took his life with a gun. And I see somebody that, I mean, my heart still breaks when I think about it. When that happened, I just, I I went to the house. I wanted to help the authorities clean up everything, just to be close to my friend, to do something for my friend. They, They wouldn't let me. So, so, so then I went to the funeral home to try to be close. He wasn't there. He's in heaven. But I was just, just trying to process it all. And all that to say, let's get rid of these sins that so easily entangle us, that hinder us from having a passion for the work of the ministry. Because again, what if everyone was as passionate as you? But not only that, let's be sure to find shade in our lives every single day. Let's find shade every single day. Every day, let's slip away with Christ and get some rest for our souls. After Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying and resisting temptation and spending time with his Father, he came down and the Bible says he was filled with the Spirit's power. Are you filled with the Spirit's power? See, Christianity, and this may be revolutionary for some of you, Christianity is not about believing a core set of doctrines. Do we have a core set of doctrines? Of course. But Christianity is not about following a core set of doctrines. Christianity is about following Jesus. Did you know that the word Christian is only used in the Bible twice and once as a slur? Oh, those Christians, you're like Christ. They were like Christ and called Christians because first and foremost, they were following Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that even the demons believe. So what? Are we following Christ? Are we covered in the dust of our rabbi? 
Are we following so closely that our life is worship because we're denying sin and we are following Christ, we're casting down strongholds, and our lives have spiritual momentum because we're living in divine wisdom? And we're not easy prey of the enemy to pick off because we have the discipline to follow Jesus every single day and catch some shade and a cool breeze and water for our soul through that quiet place, through the devotional. God has so much planned for you. So much planned for you. The stakes are so high. This world is dying to look at you and say, wait a second. I didn't see Jesus firsthand 2,000 years ago, but if Jesus were alive today, I think it would be something like that. I think it would be something like that. This world is dying to see Jesus live through you, love through you. How close are you to your rabbi? Um, This sermon is a four-parter, and I only got, it's a four-pointer, and I only got one point. I'm going to finish up the next three tonight, and we'll have some of the youth sharing testimonies tonight as well. Come back at six, and we'll also be praying as a church family for many people to be added to the kingdom next Sunday morning at 1030. Uh, We only have one collective service next week, and that's Sunday morning at 1030. And then we're going to have a fellowship uh, next week at 6 p.m., so it's it's going to be a blast. Would you stand with me, please? Father, I just want to thank you so much for every saint here. You have so many plans for them. Your purposes for them are sky high. The stakes are so high. A lost and dying world is longing to see the light of Christ so that they don't despair and sink into the waters of this world. And they don't crash against the temptations and tricks of the enemy. The stakes are so high. Souls are at stake. Families are at stake. Legacies at stake. But Lord, as Moses himself was so burdened, your glory is at stake. Your glory is at stake. Your fame is at stake. And if you guys would look at me for a second, guys. Somebody told me, they said, you know, I, I, I don't know. My life's so difficult. I don't know if I believe in Jesus or not. And I'm thinking through my... They told me this just last night. They're like, I'm thinking through what I believe in all this. And I was like, here's the thing. Jesus has been so good to me just by saving me. He's been so good to me by whispering and filling my heart with his pure love. He's been so faithful when I have not been. He's been so gracious if Jesus never does another thing which, for me, which I know that's unheard of because that's not his character, if he never does another thing for me, nevertheless, I will live my life for him. And I will proclaim his goodness until my dying breath. And as Job said, even if he chooses to slay me, yet shall I live. But this I will not have. The name of Jesus Christ being unpraised in this world and Jesus not receiving his glory through his church, I will praise him, no matter what my circumstances look like. And this is another characteristic of the dust of the rabbi. If you're covered in the dust of your rabbi, you're going to follow even though you don't know where you're going. 
<laughs> all week long, kids were like, uh, where are we going next? Uh, how long is this hike going to be? Uh, when are we going to get out of the sun? Uh, when's lunch? Uh, what are we having for lunch? Uh, when are we going to do this? How long is this session going to be? When, when is that? And I'm like, just trust. Just trust. Just wait and see. Just follow. But we're no different, are we? Just trust. Just follow. Even if it's hard times, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I recently read an article about this lady, and she went to her pastor, and she's like, I'm leaving the church. And my heart kind of sank when I read it, because I was like, yeah, I heard that one before. And he's like, okay, what's, what's going on? And she said, well, so-and-so's gossiping, and so-and-so's inconsistent, and I know so-and-so's going back into their sin, and, and so-and-so's hypocritical, and, you know, your sermon's all right, but all these people are so-and-so and so-and-so. And the preacher's like, okay, well... Before you leave the church, do me a favor. I want you to get a glass, fill it to the very top, to the very top. And then walk around the whole building, the steps, the hallways, the auditoriums. Walk around the whole building three times without spilling a drop. And then come and talk to me. And so she did that, and she came back to the pastor, and he said, did you do it? And she said, yes. He said, did you spill any water? She said, no. She said, but I'm still leaving the church. He said, well, before you do, while you were walking around the church with that cup of water, did you see anybody gossiping? She said, no. She said, did you see anybody sinning? She said, no. Did you see any hypocrites? She said, no. He said, exactly. It's because you were focused on what you were supposed to do. And in the same way, when we think it's time to check out, I don't want to be part of the body of Christ because of them, them, and them, ask yourself, are you so concerned with the speck in your brother's eye, as Jesus said, that you've ignored the plank in your own eye? Come on, how, how close are you following Christ? How close? Are you covered in the dust of your rabbi? What if everybody in the church shared your passion? What would our momentum be like? Could be good or bad. So, I think we need to pick up our cross every day and follow. Perhaps you've dropped it. I want to invite you right here to this altar and say, Lord, I repent of going back to the world. I, I, I repent of this sin, and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to pick up my cross. And like Job said, though you slay me, though we know he is good and gracious, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. So let's, uh, let's decide this morning if we want to pick up our cross and follow. So let's... Let's come to the altars if you would like to. Recommit your life to Christ or pray for continued grace to continue following with passion. And uh, and then let's just enter in back into worship as a church family. So the altars are open.